I'm Sean Eckford, and this is Coast Reporter Radio, your audio companion to the Coast Reporter, newspaper of record for British Columbia's lower Sunshine Coast. This week, it's been a while since we've had a roundtable discussion, because our COVID protocols limit the Coast Reporter radio studio to one person at a time. But as we approach the midpoint of the provincial election campaign, it's high time to talk a little politics. And we'll hear from one of the people trying to get Sunshine Coast local governments to sign a food charter. So I'm joined now by editor John Gleason and reporter Sophie Woodruff for our, our very first attempt at linking three separate offices here in the Coast Reporter headquarters via Zoom. Uh, although we do see each other on a regular basis, so it's not unusual. But it's been a while since we've all been together on the uh, podcast. So welcome back. Yeah, nice to be back, Sean. Yeah, hi, Sean. Um, what brings us together today is this provincial election we're in. And I just wanted to start by, by getting a sense. I mean, you know, Sophie, you've covered a, a federal election now locally here for the paper. John and I have uh, a few federal and provincial elections under our belts locally. What have you noticed in, in the past couple of weeks that has been different from the other campaigns? You know, for me, it's obvious the candidates themselves are less physically visible than normal. Yeah. Anything else standing out? Yeah, well, I mean, the lack of handshaking for sure it's weird like everything's yeah it's all zoomified i mean we're zoomified right now so that's probably i mean that's obviously the biggest one um I, and it which is kind of funny because that means like the only like in real life exposure that the <laughs> that these parties have on the coast uh if you're not online is basically the newspaper and signs and uh, I must say, I did a drive this week from Langdale to Egmont, and the signs are everywhere. The first one was was Nick, uh, Nick Simons, up uh, at the Langdale bypass, and then soon came the green. And just this morning was uh, the uh, the liberal uh, Sandra Stoddard Hansen sign. So another thing, I guess, that I I do wonder about and have noticed a little bit is um, social media presence. And just curious to see how that plays out here, um, whether that's something that uh, any of the candidates are going to take uh, as seriously as someone like, uh, for example, like NDP MLA Bowen Ma in the North Shore, who's like been very aggressive and I think done some really good work on that front. How about you, John? What are you noticing that's, that, that, that's different in terms of just the feel and how the campaign has been conducted from what we're used to? I mean, this is a big spread out riding. So getting that, the travel and the physical presence is often a big part of a campaign. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more uh, tuned in, I think, to the, to the voters than to the candidates in a sense. Uh, I've been, what I've noticed is a, a, a much more than I've ever seen in an election before, uh, a very high level of disengagement, a high level of cynicism, uh, a sense among some people that the that the election itself is illegitimate, that it shouldn't be happening, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. That that's what I've been noticing just talking to people randomly, um, and I, I can't recall ever experiencing that before. And and in in some ways, I, I in terms of uh, the public's attention, I think. Uh, uh, this election is third fiddle. It's not even second fiddle 
it's third fiddle, you know, that's the guy at the very end of the orchestra. The pandemic is still the number one preoccupation. I, I think that's why there's a, a definite edge of anger uh, about the election taking place when the pandemic should be the focus of government and, and uh, certainly is the focus of the public. We ju we've just seen our numbers uh, for September go up by another 12, almost doubling, as, as you've just reported. And uh, so I think that's the number one preoccupation. I think the number two preoccupation is the much better orchestrated election going on down in the States, the reality show election with bigger stars, bigger props. And, and much higher production values. Uh, you know, we just did our, our, our question of the week uh, on, on whether people are more engaged in the US election or BC's election. And we found that it was 50-50. And bear in mind, these are people who actually are reading the local news. So they're the, probably the most engaged in, in local, regional and provincial politics that you've got. And it's 50-50 among that group. So I, that, that's the sense I've got that, you know, it's sort of like the politicians want everyone to, to, to pretend that they're, they're, there's an election going on and that, that it's legitimate. And a lot of people just don't want to. And there's no superstar flies. Well, that could come later when we have the online all candidates debates, because of course that's that's also going to be the uh, uh, the big difference. The, the other thing I've noticed, and it's a, it's a phenomenon that will tend to happen later in a campaign anyway, is you don't get those uh, rows of supporters on the uh, on the roadside doing the, the the Burma shave they call it for the morning commuters. But the, although the, Bowen Ma did do that. So the, the key political difference, though, I, I, this time of Nicholas Simons of the NDP again running for re-election, but this is the first time he's done it as an incumbent on the government benches. And so one of the things uh, that I think we're all going to be watching closely is he not only has to defend his personal record as an MLA, he's now having to defend the government's record, something he hasn't ever had to do before. John, you touched on that a little bit. In, in your editorial this week. So what, what do you see as the, the challenging issues uh, for Nicholas as he tried to, to defend the NDP government record? Well, you know, obviously, when you're on the government side, you have to wear some of the government decisions uh, that, that are uh, unpopular. And, and the, the ones that I mentioned uh, were, were uh, um, obviously the trellis, you know, the decision to go forward with the trellis project in Seashelt uh, has been uh, highly contentious, but, you know, among how large a group of, of voters is, is, is a big question. Uh, Province-wide, you know, the Site C Dam decision was a, a disappointment to a lot of NDP supporters. Uh, the decision to plow ahead with LNG uh, alienated others. Uh, then, then we've got, like I say, the perennial issues of transportation here, which is the ferries and, and uh, Highway 101. So, I'm, and, and there's other issues. So, so obviously, Mr. Simons could see some erosion of support on those. But I think you've got to look at the big picture. And that, that is that the NDP, based on all the polling we've seen, is, is, 
has been very popular as well in, in, in other decisions they've made, in some cases with those decisions that they've made, you know, for among other voters um, uh, regarding Site C and LNG. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the handling of the pandemic has been seen as largely, uh, a, 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 you know, a feather in their cap, uh, you know, regardless of how much they should take credit. The fact remains they were the government in office and, and it, it went quite smoothly under their watch. So, I mean, he, as much as he will wear the negative, he will also benefit from the positive. And, and I think, you know, overall, Nicholas is uh, well-liked. He's got a good reputation for being uh, open to constituents uh, and willing to take on files uh, on, an, on, on an individual basis to help people. He doesn't always get the results people want, but he, you know, there, there is an open door uh, sense with, with, with Nicholas that, that I think has served him well. That's why he is a, a four-term MLA. Sophie, you and I were talking uh, earlier about the, the fact that a couple of those issues, uh, John pointed out in particular, you know, decisions around Site C, and LNG are sort of seeming to be among the people we've talked to in our circles, a key differentiator right now between the NDP and the green vote. And we've yeah, got, you know, we've got in Kim Darwin, you know, someone who is now an experienced campaigner with a, you know, a provincial race and a leadership race. Are you sensing that, that there might be some uh, emerging green support here that wasn't there before based on the experience of this government's record? Well, it's so funny. Site C seems so far away. I, like I, I read this, um, you know, some chatter online, basically, uh, especially, um, you know, one person, you know, had said, you know, she she's a long term uh, NDP supporter, but this year is going green and cited Site C. Um, and, uh, you know, this this kind of ongoing debate about uh, privatization around long term care is like her, those are the key issues for her that's uh, swaying her vote, as it were. And I think it's kind of funny too, like you, you just raised it, but I think it bears repeating, like, or what I'm interested to see is like my understanding is last uh, election. Kim Darwin, she was basically 100 votes shy of the BC Liberals. That's not a lot of votes. And if the BC Greens are coming in kind of with the moral high ground here, given that they, you know, at least are arguing that they stuck to, you know, that uh, the confidence and supply agreement, then that's that maybe that is significant. And also a, a big question mark that I have too is, you know, you mentioned the pandemic. This is a time when people are relying on government support in a way that they never have had to before. And a lot of people who might not otherwise want to be relying on, you know, like businesses for wage subsidies, um, you know, people who are finding themselves unemployed. That is all kind of, that's social safety net stuff. And so, you know, I, Obviously, the NDP, that's, that's, they've, they've, had, uh, they've been able to create a track record out of nothing based on, a, um, based on an event that's never happened before, but, but it's there, right? So I'm, I, I am curious to see if that's going to play into it. There is that kind of assurance that, that, uh, that the NDP has already proven that it's been able to do some, some things. Obviously, there are, those are also federal programs, but that's kind of what I'm curious about. So before we talk a bit about the the liberal situation, I just wanted to, you know, while we're talking that green NDP um, 
nexus. This is another phenomenon we've noticed in the success of elections is certainly the animosity, both online and, and sometimes in the letters we received to the paper, between Green and NDP supporters. That's, that's certainly evident at the top this time. The leaders have both been very critical of each other, despite having worked together to, uh, to govern the province for three years. Uh, John, are you sensing that there's that same level of animosity between the Green and NDP supporters that we noted, in particular, the last federal election? To tell you the truth, uh, what I've I, I've what I've noticed is the reversion to old style BC politics, where the Liberals and the NDP are going at each other with baseball bats. That uh, you see it amongst the leaders and amongst the party uh, soldiers, uh, the foot soldiers in the trenches. Uh, you know, the, the leaders are calling each other out uh, on a regular basis. Uh, you know. Uh, Horgan, of course, is, is, you know, accusing Wilkinson and the Liberals of being uh, all about uh, serving the, the, the wealthiest in society. And this is, this is just on and on. We hear this, uh, the, the Liberals in turn and, and Wilkinson accuse, you know, the, the NDP of serving their union buddies, their insiders. You know, it's, it's really quite ugly, actually. And, and you know, it, it's... It's, again, it's a real disappointment after the cooperative and almost uh, collegiate kind of relationship they seem to be having uh, up until the election call, you know. Uh, with, with the Greens, uh, I haven't really picked up on any strong, any of that kind of animosity uh, among Greens towards uh, the NDP. Uh, and even, even the, the leader, even though she's certainly being highly critical of Horgan for having called the, the, the election uh, and, and his excuses uh, about, you know, the Greens being an obstacle, uh, you know, calling those out as invalid. Uh, it's more of a sense of betrayal and, and a sense of just trying to correct the record that that's not what was happening. That, that's what I get. I, the, the sense I get with the NDP, and again, it's coming from the leaders. Uh, Horgan, you get the sense that the Greens is like, this uh, the, the, this growth on his leg that he just wants to shake off. You know, they're small fry. Let's see the two of them now. Let's get rid of them and let's you know let's govern. You know that that sort of arrogance and contempt can you know sting people <laughs> in politics and in life. And so whether it will or not, that's a big question. But that that's the feeling one gets. Uh, you know, is that okay? It's time to shake off this growth and and govern as you know the the the, the party of power that we are. Will that fly in BC? I think among a lot of NDP supporters, it, it will. Now, I just want to uh, now turn to um, the Liberals because uh, you know, we'd mentioned earlier that. Uh, Nicholas, of course, and, and now Kim are both experienced campaigners and the Liberal candidate locally, Sandra Stoddard Hansen. We have someone who's not got experience before as a candidate, but certainly has plenty of experience as a campaign organizer, working in the local riding association, volunteer, etc. We also know um, anyone who's a longtime resident of this riding realizes that it, it's one the Liberals would dearly love to have back if they could, but it's considered a safe NDP riding these days. The margin was quite strong, Nicholas, a little over 50% of the vote last time for the NDP. Uh, what do you sense 
the liberals might have to do to turn this riding, if it's at all possible this election, John? I think they have to make huge gains on, on uh, province-wide is what they have to do. The, the leader has to have some very, very strong wins. There has to be a paradigm shift, as it were, uh, in, in order for enough voters to, to uh, uh, change their, their opinion uh, about the Liberals uh, or, or to change their opinion about the NDP uh, and perhaps not vote Liberal, but maybe stay home instead of voting NDP. But we, we need a paradigm shift, I think, to see a, a huge uh, upheaval like that. Uh, what we're seeing instead with the, the Liberals uh, is they are... Um, they're trying to win back ridings in in the on the lower mainland that the NDP took last time, and so it's sort of like they're going house to house in that sense, riding to riding, trying to offer uh, promises that will appeal to the people, like the Surrey uh, policing referendum. Obviously, that's targeted to Surrey, you know, and 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 other other issues down at that end of of the province. Uh, because they know that if they can win back uh, three or four of those ridings, that's enough to shift the, the balance of power. And uh, as long as they hold on to everything else. Uh, so th that's, that seems to be the strategy. They're not going for knockout blow. Maybe that's just not possible for them to. Uh, but obviously we've got still a couple of weeks left of the election. We've got the leader debates and we could see some some action, but again, it goes back to the first thing I said, if, the, if the, the public isn't all that engaged, then when that tree falls, are they gonna hear it? <laughs> maybe that's why the PST uh, announcement, maybe that was an attempt to, to make some noise. Yeah, the, the PST announcement, you're right, Sophie, that was an attempt to, to, to shift, to shift the, the needle quite a bit uh, province-wide and, and get everybody you know, thinking, well, I could vote for that. I have to say the media wasn't very excited about it. You know, I, I noticed the media said, oh, it, 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 it felt like a lead balloon. But, well, that's because <laughs> you weren't excited about it and you didn't push it, you know. But again, when you've got a disengaged electorate, um, what do they have to do or say or promise? And, man, we've seen more promises and more freebies this year at both the provincial and federal level than we ever I think we've seen in the last decade all combined you know and so I think people are almost inured to that now it's sort of like oh yeah well you know that doesn't impress me too much you know uh, a thousand bucks well why not a million bucks <laughs> it's Halloween for adults you know we're only oh okay so while we're on the trick-or-treat theme Sophie what tricks do you think the liberals need to have in their bag to make progress in this riding are there are, are there local issues you think that, that there might be an opening for the Liberals to, to do something significant with? Well, it's funny, like I, I do, you know, you do look at uh, Sandra Stardard Hansen's um, expertise. You mentioned it, like she was on the BC Ferry Authority Board of Directors. She's a transportation consultant. One of the two biggest issues on the Sunshine Coast, arguably ferries and highways. Um, what just came out, uh, you know, a few weeks ago was that, um, you know, major review, corridor review of the, um, of the Sunshine Coast Highway between Langdale and Seashell. Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in, uh, in upgrades are needed. Maybe there is an in there for her if she wants to, to really pick up 
pick up that thread and, and make some real, um, you know, real statements about what, what she's going to do, what she's going to plan there. There's definitely, has the expertise. there's definitely an opening there because, you know, the NDP released a study and they announced uh, that they would uh, do a, a, another review, this time of a bypass, which the minister made very clear she didn't believe in. Uh, and they announced one uh, intersection upgrade. Meanwhile, the, the study called for, like you say, a great number of upgrades, uh, turning lanes, uh, all, all the rest, like a, a very large package of upgrades. And there was no reference to the rest of that. There, there was no, well, we, you know, we're going to try to get to this in year two and this in year three, four, et cetera. So, I mean, I think you're right that there is an opening there. But again, all, all she can say is that she will lobby, you know, if, if they are elected government or if they are not, she will lobby more effectively or more aggressively for those changes. She can't promise anything yeah totally and then like of course she can that's what oh, yeah, she can. Can. <laughs> everybody yeah, will she, promise she can promise things you bet yeah no that's right <laughs> Pro but a promise you can believe in there there is one uh issue where i think there is an opening um for the liberals whether they'll take it or not and it may it may happen uh you know province-wide is you know there has been talk about affordable housing and approaches to it but there hasn't really been any uh any sense about what can be done in rural areas to stimulate mm -hmm. the variety of housing types we need here on the Sunshine Coast. We just don't have a big rental stock. And, you know, you can uh, say that, you know, it's the municipalities through zoning who, who do a lot of that, but there is, there could be room for a provincial government to, to say, we're going to incentivize certain types of construction in certain areas to to fill these gaps and and i haven't really heard anything significant on that score from any of the parties so it's i think a potential uh where the liberals with their sort of free enterprise approach might be able to come up with something but you know as of yet i haven't seen it yeah no. i totally agree i think it's really interesting too because apparently a few days ago the angus reed put out a poll and they found that affordability is actually the ndp's weakest link right now after um, the pandemic response in the economy. So, and I, all I've seen so far from the Liberals is basically a, you know, scrap the speculation tax and then replace it with a like profit for condo pre-sales, which on the Sunshine Coast, what's that really going to do? You know, so it, yeah, yeah I totally we don't have the speculation tax here anyway. Anyway, that's true. Right. That's true. Which, but Nick, Nick Simons has. When you meant liberal. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. For the record, because I'm sure there might be some NDP listeners out there who say, hey, wait a minute, what's she talking about? That's why we have editors. All right. I just want to wrap up quickly uh, with the one thing we haven't talked about, and that's uh, the potential impact of mail-in voting this time around. The last time in this riding, a whopping 114 people chose to mail in their, their ballot. If if the trend that Elections BC is seeing of possibly 30% or more of voters, that's, that's upwards of 12,000 potential votes here. But, uh, you know, I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds talking about the merits of mail-in or not, but I'm just curious if you guys have decided whether you're going to do it. I have actually decided this time around, I'm going to try mail-in voting and see what happens. Not me. <laughs> you're going to go in? Yeah, I'm not going to do the mail-in. Oh, good for you. 
I usually advance votes so that I've got time clear, you know, because it's a working day for us, obviously, voting day. Mm -hmm. But uh, what about you, Sophie? Are you going to do it the old-fashioned way or the <laughs> well, other old-fashioned way by snail mail? It's so embarrassing. My, my wife, Elle, she's already, like, done. She's, like, it's, it's already, it's already, she's got the form filled out and all of that. And I'm kind of like, well, if, if I go in person, then I have an opportunity to take a photo. So, I don't know. We'll see. That's right. A busman's <laughs> holiday, as they call it, I guess. I like your attitude, Sophie. <laughs> well, I'll have the whole day free. So if there's any extra work that needs to be done on election day, I'm your guy. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. The One Straw Society and Vancouver Coastal Health have been working on a Sunshine Coast food charter for the past five years. Now, the organizations say after all that research and consultation, it's time for the local governments to sign on. One Straw's Chris Hergesheimer made that pitch to Seashelt Council this week. He said with the spotlight on food security in the aftermath of the pandemic, the time is ripe to make this happen and push for local governments to adopt it. Here are a few other highlights from his presentation. Whether the charter is promoting local investment in agriculture or driving efforts to preserve farmland or promoting food co-ops or creating policies around urban ag, a charter kind of recommends to decision makers at all levels of government where they should put their efforts. And another way, I guess, to look at it is that a food charter's a broad community statement, maybe a set of goals that sort of describe how members of a specified community, in our case, the District of Seashelt, want their food system to be maintained. It can also be used as an education piece. They sometimes help raise awareness about food system concerns and weaknesses and offer a platform for discussion and advocacy. The why now is kind of obvious to those of us who are deeply invested in this and not as obvious to others, but the past seven months has really given us insight into many of the risks or potential risks associated with the global food system and while we while we personally didn't feel the impacts more than some flower quotas at our grocery stores the risk could have been much greater and more disruptive um, and the pandemic has provided a window through which we can clearly see the potential risks and we can act in really small ways to help mitigate these risks but I'll, I'll also add an addendum to that which is it's obvious that the sort of doom and gloom and if the fairy stop running type discourses are actually not getting us where we need to be. I've been deeply involved in this work for 14 years, ever since I've come to the coast, and we're not that much farther along than we were then in some regards. Um, public sector investment is almost non-existent in agriculture. Uh, the farming sector is near stagnant due to really high land prices and lack of additional markets. And I think we need a new discourse. It, it might be about economics, it might be about community health, it might be about climate change, but perhaps the charter sort of visioning really positive type discourse can get things moving in the right direction. I'll just let it be known that almost every community in this province has a food charter, whether they're rural or urban. Ours has been in the works for over five years, 
deep consultation with a number of stakeholders, experts, gone back and forth, lots of collaborative writing on this. Um, there's been some critiques that I've heard that the charter is really high level, it's really ambitious, um, it's not actionable, or it's not project oriented. And I want to make it clear that it's meant to be high level. It's not an action document. It does not list a series of projects or things like that. The purpose of the charter is to provide a common framework and a set of agreed upon ideals from which projects, policies, initiatives can emerge and find support. That's it for Coast Reporter Radio, episode 198. You can stream Coast Reporter Radio from the audio page at coastreporter.net or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Our Twitter handle is coast underscore reporter. We're also on Facebook. Our print edition is on the streets now. We've got fresh news online throughout the week at coastreporter.net, including a special BC Votes 2020 section. Look for that in the drop-down menu. Next week, we'll start rolling out our feature interviews with the three candidates running to be the MLA for Powell River Sunshine Coast. You can find links to their web pages in our show notes. I'm Sean Eckford. For editor John Gleason, reporter Sophie Woodruff, and the rest of the team here at The Coast Reporter, thanks for listening.